If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Nehemiah chapter 4. We took a look at this passage last week, and I'd like to review it one more time and to move on to chapters 5 and 6. Now, the book of Nehemiah is about building. It's about reestablishing what God is doing. In this case, it was the rebuilding of the walls around the city of Jerusalem. I find it interesting that as the book unfolds, the very first chapter informs us of how Nehemiah learned of the need in Jerusalem. Chapter 2 reveals to us how it was that Nehemiah was able to make a difference in that he was able to speak to the king, make certain requests, and had things provided for him to do the job he felt God was calling him to do. In chapter 3, we see how Nehemiah began the task of rebuilding the walls, how he stationed different families around the walls, around the perimeter of Jerusalem, and where they lived closest, that's the area of the wall they began to rebuild. Everybody had a part. Everyone contributed. Everyone was involved, for the most part. There were some that stepped out of the work, but for the most part, the people regathered from the captivity are now engaged in rebuilding these walls. Chapters 4, 5, and 6 is focused on the opposition that Nehemiah faced. Chapter 7 records the the project is complete, and the remainder of the book of Nehemiah is about the spiritual uh, renewal that the people of Israel experienced. But three chapters are devoted to the opposition that Nehemiah had faced. I think it's very telling as we were rehearsing this week, as we rehearsed this morning, as Ed and I were talking a little bit, and he was sharing with me how he was sensing, experiencing a lot of conflict, a lot of challenges, uh, maybe oppression's too strong a word, but nevertheless, a just difficulty in his week. I had to share with him, I've been experiencing very similar things as well. Indeed, in our congregation, we are experiencing challenging elements to our congregation, but also to our personal lives. And to see that in the book of Nehemiah, three chapters, central portion of the book is devoted to opposition, or it ought to reveal to us that opposition is a common occurrence among, in the believer's life. That opposition doesn't stop. It continues. And there are a variety of ways that the evil one attempts to harm us and to work us woe, as one of the hymns has to say. We remember that the evil one is known as a murderer from the beginning, even as he led Adam and Eve into sin and into alienation from God. They experienced spiritual death by means of his tempting. He's a murderer from the beginning. Secondly, Yeshua tells us he is also a liar, a deceiver. He's one that seeks to bring destruction into the lives of God's people and into the work God calls his people to accomplish. Yeshua tells us this. Peter tells us that the evil one is like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. 
Lions are powerful creatures. I didn't know this before, but the jaw of a lion is so powerful that it can crush the strongest bone in the human body. That is the thigh bone. I learned that their legs, their paws, are so powerful that with a swat to the human skull, they can crush it. When Peter says that the evil one comes like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour, he has great power to do harm to us. He wants us to be aware of that. But the evil one doesn't always come so obviously. Because Paul tells us he can come like light. That he can manifest himself in what may appear to be a good way, an alluring way, a tempting way. But we need to be reminded that his whole agenda is to harm and to destroy and to bring to an end what God might be doing either in an individual's life or in a corporate work that God has launched or is working at. In the book of Nehemiah, three chapters, he devotes to how the evil one manifested himself and how Nehemiah addressed those challenges. So if you look at chapter 4, just very briefly because we looked at this before, he comes through the agency of human beings, through these three individuals, Sam Ballot, Tobiah, Gresham. These are the three main antagonists to Nehemiah. They come, first of all, with ridicule. So they're seeking to discourage the work to go forward. They seek to discredit Nehemiah's role in bringing about the walls. And so they say, what are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore their wall? Will they offer sacrifices? Will they finish in a day? Can they bring the stones back to life from those heaps of rubble burned as they are? In verse 3, what they are building, if even a fox climbed up on it, he would break down their wall of stones. So they come first with ridicule to discredit and discourage. Of course, the scripture is very clear that we as brothers and sisters in Messiah are to encourage one another. We are to build up one another. We are to come alongside one another. We are to bear one another's burdens. But what the evil one is doing here through these enemies of Nehemiah is to discredit him discredit the work, and to ridicule those that are working in order to bring about the wall around Jerusalem. Notice how Nehemiah responds. He begins in verse 4 by praying. He says, Hear, O God, for we are despised. Turn their insults back on their own heads. Give them over as plunder in a land of captivity. Do not cover up their guilt or blot out their sins from your sight, for they have thrown insults in the face of the builders. And by extension, 
thrown insults in the face of God because God is the one who is energizing these builders in order to build the walls. Now, you might think that because the builders do not stop simply because of the ridicule and the discrediting, that the enemies of Nehemiah would stop and would leave him alone and would leave the others alone. But he doesn't. Take a look at verse 7. But when Samballot, Tobiah, the Arabs, the Ammonites, the men of Ashdod heard that the repairs to Jerusalem walls had gone ahead and that the gaps were being closed, they were very angry. So now they do a second thing. They all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and stir up trouble against it. And notice how Nehemiah responds. But we prayed to our God and posted a guard day and night to meet this threat. So now the second thing they did was to move from ridiculing and discouraging as such, but to physical attacks on Nehemiah and the builders. That forced Nehemiah to slow the work down. They may have gotten the work done sooner, but now he had to post guards. And down the road, he's going to have the workers divide up into teams. Half will be serving as guards and half will be working. But Nehemiah prays, and then he comes up with some kind of a solution in order to address the attacks that are being threatened against him. And you might think that once he sets up the guards, and once he's made provision, that they would not attack him, and that they would step back from their intentions of destroying the work. But then look at verse 11. It says, also our enemies said, before they know it or see us, we will be right there among them and will kill them and put them to an end. Now, if that wasn't bad enough, that there were those ridiculing and there were those that were ready to physically uh, cause them harm. In verse 12, his own countrymen, then the Jews who lived near them came and told us 10 times over. Wherever you turn, they will attack us. I think that is such a neat passage. Because how often have uh, you been involved in something, and you don't just hear once, that can't work, or twice, that can't work. But over and over and over again, you're just being told, it won't work, it won't work, they're going to attack, they're going to attack. And that Nehemiah says, ten times over, you sense the frustration in his voice. He's not just telling us that they told us 10 times that we'd be attacked. He's telling us they never stopped telling us they would be attacked. His own people were so frightened and they were so weak in heart and spirit that they focused on the threat of an attack and they just kept telling Nehemiah, it's going to come, it's going to come, it's going to come, it's going to come, not just once or twice, but 10 times. It's very interesting, isn't it? How the attacks come through ridiculed discouragement, physical uh, threats, and then ongoing warnings. And what I find really interesting here is that never once do they say, but we have a suggestion that we can address this. They just keep telling him the warning. And I don't know what they expected Nehemiah to do. Did they expect that he was not going to go on with the work? But why would they just keep telling him like he didn't get it the first time? We know that Nehemiah does get it. 
And we know that Nehemiah has made some adjustments. But the fear was so great that they kept pointing to the challenge rather than looking to the solution and the grace of God. And that's why Nehemiah said, again, a third time, he directs their attention to God, and he tells them to remember the Lord in verse 14. Don't be afraid. There's the fear. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome. Now, when you look at chapter 5, the attacks persist. They come in a different way. Before it was the enemies, but now look what happens here in verse five, chapter 5, verse 1. Now the men and their wives raised a great outcry against their Jewish brothers. Some were saying, we and our sons and daughters are too numer- numerous in order for us to eat and stay alive. We must get grain. In other words, they're telling Nehemiah, we don't have any more time to put to the wall. We need to get to our farms and start plowing because... We need food. Well, then he hears, look at verse 3. Others were saying, we're mortgaging our fields and our vineyards and our homes to get grain during the famine. So now he's rebuilding the wall during an economic downturn. They're at a time when there's a famine. So even if we work hard, we're not going to have the kind of crops that we need. So what did the Jewish people do? They began to become indentured servants to the wealthy. And they became slaves to the wealthy. The wealthy were buying up their farms because they needed money to live. And as a result, they were losing their property, and they were now having to work the property, but not for themselves, but for another. So now in verse 4, still others were saying, we have had to borrow money, so now our finances are down to pay the king's tax on our fields and vineyards. Although we are of the same flesh and blood as our countrymen, And though our sons are as good as theirs, yet we have no subject, we have to subject our sons and daughters to slavery. And so now there were personal crises that were coming into the people's lives that threatened the calling that Nehemiah had been given to rebuild the walls around Jerusalem. Now, let me just step back a moment. When we think of Nehemiah, we don't think of these things at all, do we? When someone mentions Nehemiah and they say, what do you know about Nehemiah? What role of importance does he play in the history of the Jewish people? We would say he's the one that rebuilt the walls around Jerusalem. But don't think, even though he did it very quickly, 52 days, don't think that he didn't do it with a lot of anguish, a lot of conflict, a lot of opposition, and a lot of tension and anxiety. He's driven to his knees time and time again. And the reason he's driven to his knees is because he, in his own wisdom and strength, doesn't have the answers as to how he's going to address these problems. And he doesn't know whether or not he has the cooperation of others. But Nehemiah, in this instance, gets very fiery. Take a look at chapter 5, verse 6. He says, when I heard their outcry and these charges, I was very angry. Who is he angry with? He was angry with the wealthy that were taking advantage of the poor during their time of need. What does he tell the wealthy? He tells them that they should give freely and graciously. He tells them that they should not expect those that are struggling, those who are poor, to have to be purchasing and paying back and losing money over their farms because what they are doing 
is for the sake of rebuilding the walls around Jerusalem. He meets with them, and he tells them they have a responsibility with their resources to meet the needs of others so that we can get the wall rebuilt, is what he tells them. Tells us that they were moved in their conscience and that the nobles and the more wealthy are willing to submit to Nehemiah, and they do take the financial pressure off those who are struggling and who are suffering. Nehemiah points out in chapter 5 that he also had to make a change in his own state of affairs. As the governor, he was entitled to certain privileges that the others did not have. And he tells us in chapter 5 that he no longer received those benefits that were coming from Persia, but rather shared those benefits with others. And so he tells us how often he had people over his home to eat and to be nourished and to find rest. Now, when you get to chapter 6, the opposition continues. But here it takes on another turn. In chapter 3, it was ridicule, discouragement, It was physical threats, and it was uh, the people's ongoing focus on the dangers with no solutions provided. In chapter 5, the issue of the personal financial situation that the people found themselves in. Chapter 6, it's a little different. Look at verse 1. When word came to Sambalat, Tobiah, Geshem, the Arab, and the rest of our enemies... Look at this, that I had rebuilt the wall and not a gap was left in it, though up to that time I had not set the doors in the gates. These enemies of his say, come, let us meet together in one of the villages on the plain of Ono. But they were scheming to harm me. So I sent messages to them with this reply. I'm carrying on a great project and cannot come down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and go down to you? Look at this. Four times they sent me the same message, and each time I gave them the same answer. So four times now his enemies say, listen, let's talk about this. Let's meet on the plain of Ono, which is in the Gaza Strip today, or just north of the Gaza Strip along the coast. That would have taken Nehemiah from Jerusalem some 10 miles or so, or 15 miles, to the Mediterranean. Surely the work would have stopped. Surely the gates would not have been completed. Maybe even some of the walls would have been torn down if Nehemiah had left the area where they were working. Nehemiah also knew that here at Ono was where one of the enemies was from. As we read, one of these fellows was from Ashdod, That's right in the Gaza Strip. So Nehemiah knew that their intention was not in order to have a meeting of the minds, but rather to harm him so that the work would no longer continue. But Nehemiah is wise. He refuses to go, not once, not twice, not three times, but four times. So they changed their strategy a second time. Look at chapter 6 again. In verse 5, they came a fifth time. And this time they sent his aid to me with the same message. And in his hand was an unsealed letter. And the letter said, it is reported among the nations. 
And Geshem says it is true. So it must be true. That you and the Jews are plotting to revolt and therefore you are building the wall. Moreover, according to these reports, you are about to become their king. And have even appointed prophets to make this proclamation about you in Jerusalem. There is a king in Judah. Now this report will get back to the king. So come, let us confer together. So four times they say, come, let's talk about this. Nehemiah says, no. The fifth time they give an unsealed letter. What's the significance of that? The significance is anyone can read it. So it's unsealed. So as it's making its way, whoever's delivering it, they're getting opportunity to read it. They're saying, look what Nehemiah is up to. Look what, and then the word is spreading. And the rumors are circulating. And the rumor here was that Nehemiah had another plan or desire in mind. His real intention was not just to rebuild the walls, but rather to set himself up as king and therefore to lead a revolt against the Persian Empire at the time. Nothing could have been further from Nehemiah's mind. But what we read in verse 8 is, he sent this reply. Nothing like what you are saying is happening. You're just making it up out of your own head. They were all just trying to frighten us, he tells us. Their hands will get too weak for the work and it will not be completed. But I prayed, strengthen my hands. I think it's marvelous how Nehemiah, time and time again, he's wise. He goes to prayer. He encourages the people. And so he says, you're just trying to frighten us. Now, you would think after those initial attacks of discouragement and ridicule and physical threats, after the conflicts he's had to face with regard to his own people and their economic duress, after having refused to go and confer with them or to take seriously this letter that everyone now is, can read and the rumors are circulating, you would think they would stop. But they don't stop. They have one other attack upon Nehemiah. This time, they tell him that a prophet wants to speak to him. How often have you heard, God has told me this. Therefore, I have to listen to you because God has said these words to me. That's what they're telling Nehemiah. We all resort to that sometimes when we really want to get our way. And I have to tell you, I've even resorted to that. That's why I understand this so well, perhaps. But when Mary Lou and I were newly married, we were going through the mall looking for a typewriter. They had such things in those days. <laughs> and we're looking for a typewriter, and we went by the pet store. And I saw this dog in the pet store, a beautiful Hungarian Visla. And I said, Mary Lou, let's check out this dog. So we go into the, into the, the uh, pet store, and they sit us into a section, you know, where the dog can't get out. And we're sitting there playing with this beautiful puppy. But the puppy wouldn't stop chewing on Mary Lou's pocketbook, whatever you call it, handbag. And so we left. And she said, I would never get that dog. It's always biting on my, my pocketbook. So I said, okay. You know. So we left. The next day I was at work, and I was working for the American Track Society. So I was in a real holy place. And I called Mary Lou. I said, Mary Lou, I've been praying 
And the Lord told me, we should get that dog. Mary Lou says, if you really want the dog that bad, go get it. That dog lived with us for 16 years. We both fell in love with with her. We named her Rahab because we didn't know what kind of dog she would be in our neighborhood. But we named her Rahab, and we loved her to death, and we had the greatest times with her. But God never told me to buy that dog. And this prophet never was anointed by God with a word for Nehemiah. But he says he has a word, and so take a look at this. He says, one day I went to the house of Shemaiah, the son of Mehetabeh, or Bel, my eyes, who was shut in his home. He said, let us meet in the house of God, inside the temple, and let us close the temple doors, because men are coming to kill you by night, They're coming to kill you. So now they say this prophet appears to Nehemiah, and he says, look, we need to talk. The enemy is coming. We need to get you to a safe place. Let's go into the temple, and there you'll be safe, and we'll close the door. So what is he talking about? He's not just talking about the temple compound. He's talking about the holy place next to the Holy of Holies, where the doors and gates uh, were located. And so what does Nehemiah say? But I said, should a man like me run away? And then he says, or should one like me go into the temple to save his life? What he's saying is, I'm not a priest. I can't just go into the temple. That was off limits to the Jewish people, uh, the Jewish men. The Jewish priests could go in, but not just anyone. He could go into the court of the men, but not into the temple proper. And there was a place in the temple where those who wanted to find a place of refuge could go, and that was alongside the altar, the horns of the altar. The altar on its four corners had these horn elements that were attached. That's where he would go. So this guy can't be a prophet. Why? Because the prophets speak the will and way of God, not just 90% of the time or 95% of the time or 99.5% of the time, but 100% of the time. And if this man was really a prophet, he would know we should not go into the temple, let alone close the gates, and there spend time talking about the enemies who are upon me. And so he says, I will not go. I knew that God had not sent him, because, uh, but that he had prophesied against me because Tobiah, Samballot, had hired him, like Balaam in the book of Numbers. He had been hired to intimidate me so that I would commit a sin. Isn't this kind of neat? Listen, we're just talking about building a wall. And yet for Nehemiah, if he was to go back on that, it would be a sin. God had called him. And notice, when I say God had called him, I want to step back a moment. We don't read anything like Abraham, leave your home, your country, go to a land I will show you. What we know is Nehemiah was moved in his heart for the people of Judah and the city of Jerusalem. There's no statement here that says, okay, Nehemiah, I'm sending you to rebuild the wall. It was what he felt convicted of and a concern for. God opened the doors. He walked through the doors and he accomplished the task. And as a consequence, we say, God called him to it. How do we know God called him? Look at the result. But Nehemiah doesn't see the result before it occurs. 
He's writing after the fact. And therefore, it is frightening business to launch in the will of God. It's frightening to walk in God's ways. It's challenging to do God's will under great duress and trials such as Nehemiah faced and such as all of us face. Why? Because the evil one would not want us to accomplish what God wants to accomplish in and through us. So if there's anything to be learned by this, trials will not stop in your life or in our ministry wherever or when, whatever that, ought to, that will be. There will never come a time where things are going to be smooth. And we ought never to decide something is of the will of God because it is smooth and easy. It more often than not is hard and raw. And it causes fear and it requires courage. That's what Nehemiah is telling us. I will not go down. Why? Because he was a courageous man. He wasn't just one who said, I know God's in this, so I'm doing it. He was willing to exercise courage when it needed to be exercised. And courage cannot be exercised unless there's challenge and fear involved. Otherwise, we're just going down our road. Courage is needed in times of difficulty and challenge. That's what courage is about, and that's where courage is created in the hearts and lives of individuals. It is not created on the mountaintop. It's created in the valley of the shadow of death, where we are forced to our knees to pray and to rely upon our great and awesome God to bring us through to the next place where we will again need to rely upon him because the evil one will not stop and he will not relent. But that need not cause us to fear. Because Yeshua said, greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Be of good cheer, for I have overcome the world. Scripture tells us over and over again that the evil one is a defeated foe awaiting his execution. So we already are empowered by the living God to go through whatever trials and tribulations we are appointed to for the purpose of becoming courageous and trusting in the living God. Job, if you remember, was a man like Nehemiah. God said to the evil one himself, not a demon, not a lesser fallen Angel, but to the evil one himself, have you seen my servant Job? He's the most righteous man in all the earth. Now, if God ever said that, and I can never imagine him saying that to Satan about me, I would say, please don't do that. You know, God may know what he's doing, but at that juncture, I would say, time out. Can we talk about this one? But to Job, he did say that. He did say, I want you to see this servant of mine because he's unbelievable. And you could do whatever you want to him, but take his life. And you can do that to him because he will be courageous and faithful. And like Nehemiah, his enemies were his friends who were telling him like his wife, curse God and die, get it over with. 
like his friends who are saying, you must have sinned in some way. You must be wrong somewhere. You had to have miscalculated. You are experiencing this because you are not right with God. And the whole time God is saying, he's perfectly right with me. So who were his enemies but his friends? And who is energizing his friends but the evil one? It's rather frightening to think that. But it's not just Job. Look at our Messiah himself. The scripture says in the book of Luke that the spirit of God drove Yeshua into the wilderness so as to be tested by the evil one. He doesn't just go into the wilderness. He's driven there by the very spirit of God. God does test his servants. Look at Abraham. Scripture says God tested Abraham and said, I want you to take your son, your only son, your unique son, the son of promise, the son whom you love. And you are to offer him on one of the mountains I will show you. God tested Abraham. It required great courage for Abraham to obey God in that instance. It required great faithfulness in God as a great and awesome God. And now our Messiah himself faces the evil one. And the scripture is clear. He didn't just tempt him three times. It says that after that third temptation, he left him for a season. So when we get through one challenge, the next one is coming. It's not far away. Because the evil one does not give up and he does not relent. But the evil one is not particularly creative in how he harms God's people. It's the same thing over and over again. We see it in the life of Adam and Eve, and we see it in the life of Yeshua, and John tells us. He tells us that we have to be careful of the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. 1 John 2.16. Those are the gateways through which all of Satan's allurements come. It is through our eyes and what we see, like Eve who saw the fruit, that it was good. It is our pride of life for some who want more money, more prestige, more honor, more initials after their name. Just like Eve said, desirous to make one wise. And sometimes it's the lust of the flesh, Eve said. It looked like it was good for food. Same thing with Yeshua. The lust of the flesh, in which he says, turn the stones to bread. He talks, he tempts him with regard to the lust of the eyes. He shows him all the kingdoms of the world and says, I will give them to you if you bow down and worship me. The pride of life, throw yourself off the pinnacle of the temple so that all will see the angels hold you up so you cannot dash your foot against a stone. And thus all Israel will acknowledge this must indeed be the Messiah because look how he never got hurt when he fell. The pride of life. That is the way all of Satan's temptations come, whether in our personal life or in the tasks that are at hand that God calls us 
to accomplish by his grace. Now, in conclusion, look at Ephesians chapter 6. It is not just Nehemiah who illustrates this for us, and many other lessons can be drawn by other good people of God in Scripture. But Paul clearly tells us how to battle the evil one, and there are other passages. James tells us to flee so as to not be lured. And let me just say one other thing, because I didn't say before, but that while Satan and God both test us and normally through the very same experiences, God is seeking to reveal to us and others just what kind of metal we're made up of. Just what kind of people we really are. That's why God brings testings into our lives. So that we can be well informed about who we really are at the core of our soul. Where, where the need is for us to grow. Why it is others can trust us. That's why God brings testings into your life. And as we go through those testings relying upon God, people then see... That person really is a person of courage. That person really is a person who trusts God. I need to talk with him, get alongside of him or her, and learn how that comes about. God brings testings into our lives so that he might be ultimately glorified and seen as the deliverer and savior, and that we might be more and more conformed into the image of his son. He only, only, only has good intentions in mind. The evil one, on the other hand, only has evil, wicked, destructive intentions in mind. When he tempts, he's doing so, so as to lure us into evil. Never to see what we are really like. Never to develop anything positive in our lives. Only to lure us away from God and the things of God. Now, Paul tells us this is how we battle the evil one. In verse 10 of chapter 6. Finally, bringing all this to a conclusion, do not minimize the work of the evil one to thwart the work of God in your life and in your ministry. Be strong in the Lord in his mighty power. As Nehemiah says, because God is great and awesome. Number one, put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. This is very true. Look, this is exactly what we see in Nehemiah. Our struggle is not against each other. Nehemiah's struggle was not Tobiah, Samballot, Geshem, and others. Our struggle is against the principalities and powers, the rulers and authorities of this dark world, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, put on the full armor of God, not just one piece or another, all of the armor of God so we can stand our ground, to stand firm. Notice, number one, the belt of truth, to buckle around our waist. We have to be committed to integrity. We have to be committed to righteousness. We have to be committed to holiness, truth in all of its broadest understanding. 
He tells us we're to put on the breastplate of righteousness. We need to be committed to doing the right things. We need to be committed to acting in a way that is reflective of the very character of God. He tells us that we are to have our feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel, the good news that produces peace. I love that word readiness because the imagery is that of a soldier who when he's called to march, he can march. But when he gets in the battle, he may need to run, run toward the enemy. He might need to move side to side. He may need to come in and out. He's got to be flexible and ready to adjust to the changes that the enemy will bring into our lives. Because rarely is it the same exact kind of challenge we face, though it always comes from one of those three gateways. So we need to have our feet ready to move. In addition to this, he says, take up the shield of faith. Trusting God where we can extinguish the flaming arrows and attacks that come to us by the evil one. We're to guard our minds with the helmet of salvation and to be thinking the thoughts of God and the sword of the spirit. We need to be immersed in God's will, uh, in God's word. And I've said before that when Stephen Oford, this very short preacher who spoke at Calvary Baptist at 57th Street. I'll never forget when he preached on the temptation of Messiah. He said he took the sword of the Spirit and said, it is written, it is written, it is written. And it was like, whoa, you know, it was like this guy was ready to slay the enemy. That's how the word of God is to uh, undergird our lives. And then, like Nehemiah, who exhibited all of these elements, but this particularly, though not exclusively, he says, and to pray as empowered by the Spirit of God on every occasion with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for one another. My encouragement then is this, that we would be a congregation and we would be individuals devoted to prayer and devoted to doing the will of God, whatever the cost, whatever the challenge. Because like Nehemiah, at the end of the day, we'll look back and we'll see the wall built. We'll see our lives significant. We'll see our work accomplished as God calls us to do. Let's pray. Our God and Father, we are grateful for your goodness and your kindness, your mercies that are new every day. We thank you, Lord, that you are present in our midst and you empower us day by day, moment by moment. We have an enemy afoot who would seek to harm us whenever he could. But, Lord, we have a Savior who dwells within our hearts, ready to navigate us and guide us through the minefields of life. Help us, Lord, to be devoted to you at every turn. Help us, Lord, as Paul instructs and Nehemiah exemplifies. Help us to be praying ones who pray at every occasion. For every need, 
with all kinds of prayers for one another. For ultimately, Lord, it is you who will build the wall in our life that would be a manifestation of the fruits of the Spirit that you would seek to have us reflect. So, Lord, we entrust ourselves to you, and we pray for your grace in these matters, for we pray in Messiah's name. Amen.